Well, a sidebar in the world news and business section of the Richmond Times Dispatch this past Wednesday featured the following column. I don't know if you saw this, but it certainly caught my attention. Breaking news. World's number two smartest man reveals secret genius pill. Supercharge your brain and think better than ever. You've probably never heard of Rick Rosner, officially the world's second smartest man. Some experts say it's because his intelligence was almost by accident. The result of an unusual smart pill he takes every morning. And he agrees, this pill makes my brain work better, says Rosner. By preventing or slowing the brain's inevitable aging process, it's sort of like being smarter. Al Sears, MD, recently released a brain-boosting supplement based on this pill that has become so popular, he's having trouble keeping it in stock. Dr. Sears is the author of over 500 scientific papers on anti-aging and recently spoke at the WPBF 25 Health and Wellness Festival. Thousands of people listened to Dr. Sears speak on his anti-aging breakthroughs and attended his book signing at the event. All told, exactly 27,432 bottles of this pill have been sold, and everyone who takes it reports similar mind-blowing results. One of Dr. Sears' patients was very concerned when his memory started slipping. I was worried when I started blanking out on things that, that used to be routine. All those senior moments started way too young. But they suddenly stopped when I started taking Omega Rejuvenol. And now I feel my focus and memory are back at age 30 levels. <laughs> I'm 30-some. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, all right? Well, I don't know if you saw that article, but if you keep reading, I just read the first part of it, you would learn that there are two ingredients in Omega Rejuvenol. And the first ingredient is krill oil from the North Pole. And the second ingredient is squid oil from the South Pole. <laughs> and you'll also learn that the mail order hotline will be taking orders only for the next 48 hours. Because after that, the phone number will be shut down to allow them to restock. Yeah. So, how many of you think that's a reliable news article? Yeah. Yeah, how, how many of you are skeptical? Yeah, right? Skeptical. Very good. I sort of cued that by the way I read that. I'm pretty skeptical anytime I see a headline with words like secret genius pill. And my suspicions were confirmed when I found a very, very fine print small footnote at the bottom of this article that I want to read to you. Quote, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I was getting worried. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Why buy it? Results may vary from person to person. <laughs> No individual result should be seen as typical. Really? 
Well, that sure sounds like the opposite of everyone who takes it reports similar mind-blowing results. I mean, it's obviously, it's an advertisement. A paid advertisement that was, was pretending to be reliable news. And things like exaggerated claims, manipulative wording, a lack of authoritative testimony from the FDA, rightly arouse our suspicions and undermine our trust. I told Elise I was going to share this, and she said, I hope nobody in the church called that number this week, Matthew. <laughs> uh, I hope you didn't either. But all, the, all those things make us suspicious. They make us skeptical. We see things when we read something like that, and we think that, eh, no, that's, that doesn't pass the sniff test. Friends, praise God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not like that. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that the good news of what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son is not a construct of the human imagination. Okay, nor is it a religious con job. No, no matter how many times sensationalist authors like Dan Brown try to spin it that way. The essential, the essential message of Christianity, it's not a paid advertisement or fake news, okay? It is an objective historical reality confirmed by reliable eyewitness testimony. That's what the gospel is. It's not a religious con job. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Why, why does Paul say that? Because it's his way of saying, guys, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? Jesus is real, and Jesus is alive. And if that's difficult for you to believe, Paul says, as it was once incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for me to believe, then go talk to lots of different people from different walks of life who all saw the risen Christ and whose lives have been transformed by the saving power of God. The reliability of the gospel is confirmed by eyewitness testimony that you have to deal with, friend, you have to deal with that if you're going to objectively evaluate the Christian faith. But if you spend any time in, in court or, or watching court drama on TV, you, you know something about eyewitness testimony. What's that? Well, sometimes it's wrong. People make mistakes, both intentional and, and unintentional. It's part of our, our experience in a fallen world. And so without contradicting Paul's 
words in 1 Corinthians 15 or or denying the biblical doctrine of inspiration, the Apostle John here in 1 John chapter 5, he draws our attention to an infinitely greater witness and an infinitely supremely authoritative testimony concerning the person and work of Christ. And that is the testimony of God himself. The, The ultimate reason... Please hear this. The ultimate reason that the gospel of Jesus Christ deserves the trust it requires is because God himself has testified to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You need to realize that every truth claim in this world, no matter what's being said, it assumes some sort of authority by which what is true can be distinguished from what is false. And and in these verses, as John prepares to draw his letter to a close and strengthen our Christian assurance, he wisely and carefully directs our attention to the most authoritative testimony of all. It's as if John calls in his expert witness who is more than capable of settling the question of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The the big idea here, friends, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ deserves the trust it requires. Deserves the trust it requires. That's the big idea, and John accomplishes that goal. He persuades us that the gospel deserves the trust it requires by making two points. The first one is this, verses 6 through 9. The testimony of God about Christ deserves Trust. The testimony of God about Christ deserves trust. So look at verse 8 with me. 1 John 5, verse 8. In this verse, John lists three ways that God has testified to the truth about Jesus, the testimony of the Spirit, the testimony of the water, and the testimony of the blood. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you think, John, that's a little confusing. I mean, what, what is up with water and blood having something to say about who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Well, verse 6 kind of guides us in the right direction here. If you look there at the beginning, for there we read, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So listen, when, when John says that Jesus came by water and blood, he's referring to more than just the point in time act of the incarnation. The moment when the eternal Son of God took a human flesh to himself in Mary's womb. He's referring to the entire life and ministry of Jesus as as the one who came from heaven to earth to rescue us from sin and death. So when he talks about Jesus coming, he's wrapping his arms around the whole of Jesus' life and ministry. And when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus as a whole, there are two bookends to that life and ministry. Two two bookends that represent high points, defining moments in that life and ministry, and wrap up the whole. One at the beginning, one at the end. The one at the beginning, aptly represented by water, is his baptism. And the one at the end, aptly represented by blood, is his crucifixion. So let's just think about those two. Jesus' baptism, Jesus' crucifixion. How do they testify to the trustworthy nature of the gospel? Well, at the beginning of his public ministry, 
The historic event of Jesus' baptism was the setting for one of God's clearest testimonies that Jesus wasn't just a good person, he was the Christ, the divine Son of God. You know, back then, people didn't have so much a hard time thinking that that Jesus was divine as much as they did imagining that somehow the divine could be one, could dwell with the finite. Today, we have the opposite problem, right? We, we have no trouble believing that Jesus is just a finite guy. We have trouble believing that he's the Christ, divine Son of God. And Jesus' baptism testifies to the, that truth that he's not just Jesus the person, he's Jesus the Christ, the divine Son of God. Look at Luke 3, verse 21. What happened when he was baptized? Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Okay, now why is that moment important? You know, we we think a lot about, about Jesus' death, we think a lot about his resurrection, but we don't think much about his baptism. I think we should spend more time considering his baptism because at least two critically important things are taking place here. What I just read from Luke, okay? First, the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the Son of God was God's way of recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited servant of the Lord, the true Israel, the divine Savior that God had promised in the Old Testament, he would send. So look at Isaiah 42. Listen listen how God describes the servant of the Lord. Verse 1, Behold my chosen servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my what? My spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's this presence of the spirit in abundant measure that that identifies the servant of the Lord. And listen how the servant of the Lord speaks of himself. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You know what? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said today, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus' baptism, God identifies his son as the spirit-filled man par excellence. And in the light of those prophecies, which, by the way, every Jew would have been familiar, the, the outpouring of the spirit was a sign that Jesus wasn't just a mere man, okay? He was the Christ. He didn't become the Christ at his baptism. That's a heresy, Okay? The outpouring of the Spirit on the occasion of his baptism confirmed that he was the Christ. And that's the first reason his baptism is important. It confirms his identity as the Christ. Here's the second. Okay? I said it was important for two reasons. Here's the second. The, the sacrament of baptism, then as now, was an obedient act of repentance. Right? It, it was a visible expression of dying, for living to, dying to living for ourselves and rising to live for God. Except there's a problem with that. Because if you read the Gospels, it's abundantly clear that Jesus had no sin for which he needed to repent. Right? So why was he baptized? 
Well, he was baptized, friend, because through the act of his baptism, God testified that his son had come to identify with Israel in her sin so that his son could redeem Israel from her sin. That's why he had to do that. So in Jesus' baptism, the historic event, God testifies to the the deity of Christ and makes the loudest possible statement that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior who had come to do for Israel what Israel could not do for herself. But but what does John say? Look back at verse 6. Jesus didn't come by the water only, but what? By the water and the blood. So even more than Jesus' baptism, his crucifixion provides clear testimony that God himself had come to rescue us from sin and death. How do we know that when John refers to blood, he's referring to Jesus' crucifixion? Well, 1 John 1.7 points us in that direction. Because there, John speaks of the what? Blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin. And Hebrews 9.12 makes the same point by by identifying Jesus' shed blood as the necessary means by which God provides a full and complete atonement for all the guilt of our sin. Listen to this. Christ entered once and for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by what? By means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, there's the spirit again, offered without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross was not a byproduct of Jewish jealousy or Roman cruelty. It was the eternal plan of God for cleansing you from the guilt of your sin. And a powerful public testimony that in Jesus and Jesus alone, we find the forgiveness we desperately need. So you've got two bookends, all right? Jesus' life and ministry that wrap up the whole. You've got a historical event of his baptism, the water, the historical event of his crucifixion, the blood, and all of that together and everything it wraps up testifies to the deity of his person and the saving power of his work. But John's not done. He's got not done. He's got another witness. And he takes great pains, look back at verse 6, to make clear that there are three that testify. Right? The Spirit the water, and the blood. So so why does John list the Spirit first? Well, I think that's because it's the Holy Spirit who, who takes the historical events of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' crucifixion and all the ministry that came between them, and he enables us, the Spirit of God enables us to understand their spiritual significance. That's what the Spirit does. And in 1 John 2.20, John's already reminded the recipients of his letter that that if you're a Christian, you've been what? You've been anointed by the Holy One, the Spirit of God. And in John 15.26, Jesus himself gives us probably one of the best crystal clear one-verse descriptions 
of exactly what the Spirit is here to do. All right, look at John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will what? He will bear witness about me. Jesus is speaking. The first he in the last phrase is the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness about me, about God the Son. So how does the Spirit do that? How how does God, through the Spirit, testify to the truth about Jesus? Two ways. He testifies in the past through the historical event of Jesus' baptism and crucifixion. Okay, so recall in Luke 3, when I read that, it was the Spirit who descended on Jesus at his baptism. And, And in Hebrews 9, it was the Spirit who enabled Jesus to present himself on our behalf as a spotless offering for sin. The Spirit testifies in the past, but the Spirit also testifies in the present. How does the Spirit do that? Well, he imparts the supernatural gift of assurance to our heart, to your heart, so that you can believe in the significance and importance and meaning and results and implications of Jesus' person and work. Spirit does that. I Howard Marshall says it this way, it is this as the Spirit speaks through the Word. I love that. May we always be a church that is centered on the Word and filled with the Spirit. It is as the Spirit speaks through the Word that He makes it convincing to the heart of the individual. Friend, you cannot believe the saving significance, the divine identity deity of the Son of God, unless the Spirit of God opens your heart and enables you to do that. You cannot conjure that up. I cannot impart to you my faith. I can stir up your faith by way of reminder, but only the Holy Spirit can give you faith. So praise God that as the Lord of history, he testifies of his son in history through those events, but he also testifies to his son today through the internal witness of the Spirit. Thus, verse 7, look there. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Don't miss the importance of that, okay? Why is that important? Well, if, if you're following, think about this. If you're following a judicial hearing, and none of the witnesses agree, what do you immediately conclude? Somebody's lying, (laughs) right? Either the prosecution story isn't true, or the defense's story isn't true, or maybe, odds are, nobody's saying the truth, okay? But, But what does a jury tend to conclude if all the eyewitness in a given trial, a given hearing, completely agrees with every other eyewitness testimony? With no exceptions. Witnesses from the prosecution, witnesses from the defense, they all get up there, and lo and behold, they all say the same thing. Not that that happens, but but if it did and you were on that jury, what would you conclude? You would think, you know what? I think I know what the truth is. (laughs) They all seem to agree. We, We do that all the time with human testimony. We're more confident that something's true when multiple witnesses agree it's true than if merely one person says it's true. That's just the way we, we work. And, and Jewish culture was no different. So in Deuteronomy 17, 
the Lord establishes two or three witnesses as the, a benchmark of sorts for confirming the truth. And that's what John appeals to. That's the background to verse 7. So basically, John's saying here, guys, listen. You believe the testimony of two or three human witnesses all the time. Just two or three of them say the same thing. They agree. All right, I believe that's true. How much more should you believe the testimony of God when he testifies in three different ways that Jesus is who he says he is and has accomplished for you everything he said he's done for you? Besides, if you're willing to believe the testimony of men, look at verse 9. The testimony of God is what? It's greater. It's greater. I mean, it's like John saying, listen, okay, just stop down and be, be reasonable. If you're willing to believe the testimony of fallible men when two or three of them happen to say the same thing, then you better believe the testimony of infallible God. Because he created those men. He created you in his image. And, and he enables us to, to understand the truth and speak the truth because he is the truth. So in what sense is the testimony of God greater? Well, it's greater in significance. It's greater in trustworthiness. Robert Yarbrough says it this way. Since he is infinitely superior to humans. Just stop and think about that. This one testifying, God testifying, through the water, the blood, the spirit. Since he, God, is infinitely superior to humans, his testimony should be regarded as infinitely weightier and tenaciously embraced. That's right. That's right. Now, there's some serious application here that we need juice for. Because if it's hot out down there, it's really hot up here. Think about this, okay? Think about this. The fact that God himself, God himself is the one who bears witness to the truth and worth of his son is just one more reminder, friends, that we are absolutely dependent on the self-revelation of God. We're absolutely dependent on revelation, truth coming from outside of ourselves into ourselves if we're going to understand what's true and believe what's true. Why is that the case? Why are you, whether you realize it or not, utterly dependent on divine revelation in order to know what is true and believe what is true? There's one word answer for that. You're a creature. I'm a creature. That means we're not the creator. We're not the creator. And friends, because of that, we, we don't get to decide who Jesus is. God tells us who Jesus is. You know, we, we live in a world that, that increasingly views Jesus as as this religious idea that you can just assign meaning to, like pin the tail on a donkey, <laughs> however you see fit. So, you know, Jews say one thing about Jesus, Muslims say one thing about Jesus, Christianity says another thing about Jesus, but you know, it's kind of like the blind man and the elephant. Most likely he's a combination of all three, but, but since we never really know for sure, everyone should just quit insisting that I know who Jesus is. <laughs> By the way, somebody has to know it's an elephant in order for that to even work. <laughs> but here's what's so helpful. 
if, if our understanding of the person and work of Christ were limited to our thoughts as human beings, then what I just described, that, that approach, everybody's got a little piece of the truth, we try to put it together and, and sing Kumbaya, that would make sense. Okay? But that's not the nature of the situation, right? The nature of the situation is this, that God has borne decisive and authoritative testimony concerning the person and work of his son. God's borne that testimony. You know what's your job? The only thing we get to do is decide, do, am I going to believe that or not? We don't get to decide who Jesus is. We, we don't get to attribute meaning to him. God attributes all the meaning that he has ever had to the Son of God because we are dependent on that revelation. Don't go out and try to start a quest to figure out who Jesus is. Believe the word of God. Because Jesus isn't whatever you think he is, friend. He is who God says he is. And please hear this. I mean this in love. God, because he loves you, he will orchestrate the circumstances of your life to shatter and cut away all your false notions of who he is. Do you realize that is the most loving thing that God could ever do for you? And he did it. Who did he do that for? Who did he famously in the New Testament shatter a false notion about who he is because he loved him? Paul. Acts chapter 9 verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He's going to kill some Christians. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. (laughs) Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? I mean, talk about like a a worldview implosion. (laughs) And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Friends, he loves us enough to deliver us from living for a God of our own making. And, and you know how he often gets that done? <laughs> we don't like this, but he gets that done through suffering. I, I'm not saying that God is the personal cause of all your suffering. Okay, well, what I am saying is that one of the ways God expresses his sovereignty over our suffering and through our suffering is by using our suffering to mercifully and graciously expose our unbiblical expectations of who he is and what his love looks like and feels like. Because what's the world do? The world experiences suffering and says, how can I believe in a God who would allow that to happen? Right? How many times have you heard that? But what's the Christian say? The Christian experiences suffering no less than the world and says, Father, would you help me repent of arrogantly placing you in a little box and demanding that you play by my rules? Help me remember that, that you're God. I'm not. Lord, would you forgive me for where I've, I've started with my circumstances and decided what kind of God I want you to be? Help me to start with your word and allow you to tell me what kind of God you actually are. 
Help me believe in you as, as you have revealed yourself to be and not recreate you in my own image simply so I can feel justified in rejecting you when you inevitably don't play by my rules. We do that. It's so arrogant. Which is why we have to remember that the testimony of God about Christ deserves our trust. It's why his word is such a gift, friends. I mean, even in, especially in our suffering, every, every page, every story, every warning, every promise, it, it all points to him. And so in the midst of our suffering, you should expect God to be eager and waiting through the power of his spirit to use the gift of his word as your suffering is causing you to ask questions like, Paul, who are you, Lord, that you never asked before? God wants to use his word to bring answers to those questions. And in using his word to readjust your expectations of who he is and what his love looks like and feels like, you will find not necessarily immediate relief from your suffering, but you will find God. And that is the most precious gift he could ever give you. That'll keep you going. That'll keep you going. So if you're suffering, you need to immerse yourself in the word of God. Because the Holy Spirit wants to use this word, wants to use the word to guide you into all the truth. First and foremost, who is Jesus? What has he done for you in the gospel? And how is that relevant for you today? Okay? So John's goal here, what's he trying to do? He's trying to help us understand why the gospel deserves the trust it requires. He accomplishes that goal by making two points. Okay? The first one was significantly longer than the second. So have no fear. What was the first one? The testimony of God about Christ deserves our trust. Here's the second one. The life God offers us in Christ requires our trust. Got to keep those two things together, okay? The testimony of God about Christ, it deserves our trust. It's, it's worthy of our trust. And at the same time, the life that God in turn offers us in Christ, it requires or it demands our trust. I've especially got verses 10 to 12 in view here. So look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. John reminds us here, this is so helpful, that we cannot separate genuine faith in God from genuine faith in his Son. Why not? Because it's the Father who has given final and definitive testimony to the truth and worth of his Son. In other words, you can't claim to believe in God as he has revealed himself to be and at the same time refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. God doesn't leave that option open to us because he testifies that Jesus is the Christ. So where does that leave us? With a choice, right? You will either believe God by believing that Jesus is the Christ and show that belief by submitting your life to him accordingly, or you will call God a liar by not believing that Jesus is the Christ and refusing to submit your life to him accordingly. Now, why is that choice important? Maybe you hear me say that and you think, well, you think that's a choice, but I didn't wake up this morning feeling like I had to make that choice. I, I believe in God, but, you know, I'm not so sure about Jesus, and people say one thing, people say another, and who knows? Well, why is that choice important? Why does it matter if you choose to believe or deny the testimony that God has made about who Jesus is and what he's done for us? 
Why does it matter, ultimately, whether you believe God or you call him a liar? Well, here's why it matters, okay? Here's why it matters. And if you find yourself thinking, well, what's the harm of just holding on to my own view of religion? Here's, here's why it matters. It matters because what you believe about Jesus doesn't just determine what box you check on the census. What you believe about Jesus determines whether you will know life. It's not an exaggeration. What what does John say? What does he say? Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is where? In his Son. In his Son. I want to bring this sermon to a landing by looking carefully at this verse. All right? There's something you desperately need. There's something I desperately need that that we cannot create for ourselves, and that is the gift of life. And and I'm not just talking about physical existence, okay? John has a lot more in view here than just keeping your heart beating, right? He's talking about the joy of relationship and fellowship with God. He's talking about the joy of waking up in the morning knowing that you have a heavenly Father, who loves you, who loves you and, and delights in you and, and who gives you on this day a reason to live that is infinitely greater than you are. That's the life John's talking about. He's, he's reminding us that, that God created us to know him. He, he made us to live for him and there's no lasting joy or satisfaction apart from him. There are some of you in this room that I'm quite sure the world around you looks at and thinks, if only I could be that person. Look at all the things they have. Look at their job. Look at their family. Look at their kids. Look at their money. Look at their cars. Look at their house. They just seem so happy. And you know, they look at that. They want that. But such is the depravity of sin, friends, that we, we think that in all those things, will find life. When I got a new car, used car, but a new car for me, earlier this year, I was so excited. I mean, I, I needed to use a screwdriver to open the door or shut the door every time I got in and out of my old car. <laughs> I was just ready to be done with the thing. And so I bought a new car, and, you know, I remember driving it home, and it's like, don't touch my car. Lisa has all her woodworking stuff in the garage. It's all got to go out in the driveway because my car's got to go in this garage. You know, and anytime I think we, or God blesses us with a new possession, it's just so easy to feel like, yeah. You know, it's been a hard week, but oh, the car. And, and we, look, we look for those things for life, right? You know, maybe you look for it in uh, being recognized at work, or recognized in the church, or and travel, or sex, or recreation. I mean, we're just so good at, at looking for life anywhere and everywhere but God. And, and to whatever degree you're doing that right now, even if you're a Christian and, and you're doing that like I'm tempted to do, friend, I implore you, just stop. You have to stop. Don't don't be a fool. Don't expect a broken cistern that can hold no water to satisfy your soul. 
God, God didn't make you for those things. Okay? He made you for himself. So hear the word of the Lord in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, the revelation of God, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Hear what I've told you about the person of Christ, the worth of Christ, the work of Christ. Hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Friend, the Lord today is eager to give you life. He's eager to give you life because the gift of life can be found nowhere else. What does John say? And this life is in his son. It's in his son. You can roam the whole world, friend. You can have it all. And you will wake up one morning, and if you're honest, you will know in the depth of your soul, I have no life. And you can fool everybody who's watching you on Instagram. But if you're honest, quiet of your own heart and mind, you, you alone know how miserable you are. And how pointless your life feels. That is God lovingly arranging circumstances to show you that you won't find life there. But you'll find it in him. He loves you enough to do that. To give us life in the future and eternity and a taste of that life now. May Psalm 34 become your experience as you choose to humble your arrogant mind and believe the testimony that God has made about Jesus Christ. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed right now is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If you want that to be true of your life, one thing is necessary. Look at verse 10. You must believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. That's what you must do. Because the testimony about God isn't, testimony of God about Christ, it's not just worthy of your trust. It requires trust. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in him and him alone, you find the joy and satisfaction and salvation, not just at some point in the past when you walked an aisle, but right now today. The gospel deserves the trust it requires, but it requires trust, friends. It requires trust. You will not find life apart from faith in Christ. And so I exhort you to believe the reliable testimony, to trust the reliable testimony. Do not make the mistake of refusing to believe in him and cutting yourself off from the life of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you have given us 
in the gospel a good news. Best news we could ever hear. And that it is both because of your testimony, worthy of our trust, and requires our trust. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that wherever we have lost sight or maybe never seen the trustworthy nature of who you have said Jesus is and what you have said he has done for us to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us to you. But wherever we've lost sight of that or never believed that, would you come right now, Spirit of God, Pour out the grace of conviction. I pray you would humble our hearts that are so prone to create you in our own image. And that we would believe with all our hearts that you are who you say you are. even when the circumstances of our life seem to point unanimously in the other direction. Spirit, I pray that you would take the historic reality, the objective reality of your baptism, Jesus, your crucifixion, Savior, and birth faith. Help us trust you. Remind us that your word and the trustworthiness of it will never be smaller than the measure of our faith. But that your word is always worthy of even more trust and even more faith than we can ever imagine. Because you are a faithful God. And we pray that you would give us the trust that you require. We pray with St. Augustine, command what you will and will what you command. Amen.